can one be an American nationalist? The very fact that we are gathered at a conference for national conservatives in America, after all, Miami is technically America, would seem to presuppose an affirmative answer to this question. The interrogative title might rightfully strike some, therefore, as provocative, and it is meant to be. Provocation can be a good thing if it provokes us to think, and if this thinking makes us more effective in our shared objectives. So, back to the question, can one be an American nationalist? One problem with the term nationalism, or even America first, is that in some way these terms are inherently vague and flexible on substance. After all, in some sense, even those we might describe as the evil globalists would probably argue that in some ultimate sense their policy platform or political approach is the best one for the nation and the people in it. But the difficulty I would like to address here is of a different sort. The issue I'm concerned with is less about whether a preference for nationalism begs the question as to what actually best serves the interests of the nation or what it means to put a nation first. Rather, I'm concerned with the problem of how one can be a nationalist in a situation in which one's nation is the primary locus of the very problems one hopes to solve by being a nationalist. Put more strongly, what does it mean to be a nationalist in a situation in which the nation's dominant institutions and stakeholders have become fundamentally hostile to the would-be nationalist? We can begin to make this problem more concrete by turning to the Brexit vote, which together with the election of Trump shapes the political context in which the term nationalism has gained renewed attention. In some sense, Brexit could be understood as the quintessential nationalist victory. The people of Britain taking back sovereignty from a meddling and malicious supranational institution like the EU. But this victory also shows the limitations of such nationalism. Indeed, it is not as though Britain was a healthy and functional society but for the influence of outside EU bureaucrats. Quite the contrary, the fundamental societal, cultural, and political decay one sees in Britain is much more fundamentally a British problem than it is a result of EU influence. The infamous Rotherham scandal, in which Pakistani rape gangs were allowed to terrorize vulnerable young British girls because the authorities were too scared of being perceived as racist, this cannot be blamed on distant EU bureaucrats. The UK's massive immigration policy similarly cannot be blamed on EU bureaucrats, nor can the UK's hate speech laws, which threaten to jail citizens who so much as use the phrase illegal alien. Given that the UK's most fundamental problems come from the UK itself and not the EU, Brexit is ultimately far less significant than it is sold to be. And much of the significance it did have was on a second-order basis. That is, because the Brexit vote became a proxy for intra-UK populist grievances against the British ruling class. Now let us turn to the United States. Every single important institution in the United States is dictated, if not animated, by a vicious hostility toward precisely the type of American who might identify as a nationalist. This introduces some severe complications for the would-be nationalists. Let us consider the ostensible nationalist policy of favoring American companies over foreign companies, of buying American. To start, take the example of Goodyear. 
the tire company that generated controversy for allegedly prohibiting MAGA hats while allowing clothing supporting Black Lives Matter. Assuming the stories about Goodyear were true, should the MAGA nationalists nonetheless support Goodyear over, say, a foreign competitor that is neutral toward him rather than actively hostile? For broader perspective, during the summer of George Floyd riots, America's top corporations pledged to donate a collective $50 billion to Black Lives Matter-related causes. It has risen to the level of a farce how corporate advertisements stumble over themselves attempting to demonstrate fealty to the latest woke orthodoxies, whether it be BLM, feminism, transgenderism, and so forth. Ought an American nationalist support such corporations over potential foreign competitors? The problem becomes more acute when it comes to the notoriously biased and censorious big tech companies, all of which are American. The big tech companies, Google, Facebook, Apple, Twitter, that deplatformed Donald Trump while he was sitting president of the United States were American companies. Chinese TikTok is a favorite whipping boy among many on the right, though it is actually far less censorious than the American tech platforms. And the censorship they do engage in, in all likelihood, isn't being pushed from China, but rather comes from woke Western employees catering to the demands of the Western market. Take, for instance, the, int uh, the recent censorship of Andrew Tate from TikTok. That wasn't coming from President Xi. Indeed, the Chinese do many bad things, but they are not woke. Another example is... We like to lambast uh, Chinese uh, movie industry and how we're catering to the demands of the Chinese market. But if it weren't for the countervailing influence of the non-woke Chinese movie consumer, consumer, we'd probably have a transsexual James Bond by now. Of course, this isn't to say that China is in a dystopian censorship regime, just like what I've come to call the globalist American empire. It's just that these authoritarian regimes censor different things. And so when TikTok is the latest big tech platform to ban Andrew Tate for politically incorrect remarks about feminism, it's safe to assume the driving force is coming from Westerners, not China. And it in, for this reason, it's a little disappointing that TikTok is the only tech company that the Trump administration went after in a major way. It makes sense. It is an easy target compared to the American companies that play a far greater role in hostilities toward Trump supporters. And given the importance of Google, Facebook, and Twitter in facilitating influence operations overseas on behalf of American intelligence agencies, to go after these companies in a serious way would be to undercut a major comparative advantage the United States enjoys in the realm of public diplomacy and information warfare. And so should the mega nationalists just suck it up and begrudgingly support the companies complicit in their domestic disposition, dispossession so the United States can more easily foment coups and support the right rebel groups overseas? The last consideration helps us to refine the problem of nationalism into our most provocative formulation yet. So far, we have asked whether it makes sense for nationalists to support corporations that embrace and promote wokeness when those corporations are American. But wokeness is the unofficial religion and ideology of the globalist American empire. It's not that the uh, corporations and big tech companies are reluctant to embrace wokeness, but they don't really have a choice. A major corporation or institution in the globalist American empire can no more repudiate wokeness than a major institution or corporation in China can rebuke the CCP. 
Such displays are simply the cost of admission to operate at the highest level in these respective countries. So it is tempting to conclude from this that our wokeness is only superficially tied to our institutions and regimes. Simply lip service that corporations and other institutions pay to a small vocal minority of zealots. Unfortunately, my conclusion is quite the opposite. Wokeness, as we have come to understand it, is far more deeply and essentially intertwined, not only into the power structure of the United States, but the specific manner in which the United States, or as I call it, the globalist American empire, projects power. A full account of this mechanism runs outside the scope of this brief talk, but I can provide some intuition for this in invoking the color revolution model of power projection that has become a staple of US influence. A chief characteristic of this color revolution model is to identify cleavages, ethnic, religious, gender, in the target community, exacerbate and mobilize populations on the basis of those cleavages and grievances by leveraging control over NGOs, media, and other instruments of soft power. Just to take a few examples, we see this with our approach to the Uyghurs in China, the Rohingya in Myanmar, female student groups in Belarus, gays and feminists in Russia, and other parts of Eastern Europe, and so forth. Wokeness is in this sense substantively intertwined with the specific mechanisms of soft power that the globalist American empire wields domestically over its citizens and abroad and plays most directly into America's comparative advantages in terms of mass media, propaganda, and soft power. Wokeness is also more and deeply embedded into not only the American culture, but the American economy and legal system on account of the entire ecosystem developed to accommodate civil rights and disparate impact law. In short, it is safe to say that the globalist American empire is the primary incubator and disseminator of woke ideology and that the overall strength of the woke poison is connected to the strength of the globalist American empire. A troubling question emerges. Should the nationalists unequivocally and in an untempered fashion wish to facilitate the strength, prestige, and geopolitical preeminence of the globalist American empire in its current instantiation? There's been much discussion and scandal over the so-called wokeification of the United States military. The complaint being that the more woke a military is, the, the less effective it is. And this is undoubtedly true, but if it is a woke military serving a woke empire with a woke agenda, do we want the military to more effectively ensure America's position to impose drag queens, pride parades, and puberty blockers for children on the rest of the world. Thinking about it this way, we might be thankful that the generals in the Pentagon are such low IQ incompetence. Of course, we wouldn't want any rival to gain too much preeminence, but the above addresses why a nationalist in American context might not want a supreme American preeminence either. China is not a free society, neither is Russia, neither is the United States, but the value of multipolarity and balance, however, is it's better to have different types of authoritarian regimes rather than just one, so at least we can arbitrage the differences. 
And this is not to say we should root against America. It's really to say that America is at such a stage of corruption that the key stakeholders in American preeminence are no longer the demographic of the American people who would label themselves as nationalists. There's a profound disconnect between the well-being and flourishing of the American people and the geopolitical dominance of the globalist American empire. As Trump himself said, their victories are not our victories. And so at the very least, I would encourage would-be American nationalists not to fall into the battered spouse trap of supporting the very institutions that have been repurposed for the destruction of American nationalists. In short, I say let the degenerates make sacrifices for the prestige and preeminence of the globalist American empire while we do the difficult work of building an America that deserves such preeminence. Thank you.